Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is the progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is Politics Done Right. Welcome to Politics Done Right from the studios of KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston, your community radio station. We have a great program for you today. Remember, folks, we are going live pretty soon and we'll be taking calls at KPFT 90.1 FM, Houston. Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. Today, we are honored to have Molly Cook. Molly Cook, who is she? An ER nurse, an organize, a community organizer, an advocate, you name it. She's what we always talk about needing, not only in Houston, but all throughout the country. Molly, welcome to Politics Done Right. How are you doing today? Thank you, Egberto. I'm great. How are you doing? I am doing great. Well, you know, you are working on yet another very important issue here in Houston. Stop I-45 in its current, uh, the, the development in its current instantiation. Tell us a little bit about this and why is it that you're so adamant that we need to redo this thing? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, a lot of people know I grew up in the Woodlands, which is a northwest suburb, um, and freeways were ostensibly built for folks in the suburbs for white flight, right? Um, to make it possible for people to live outside of town, pay taxes somewhere else, but come inside of town to use the amenities and um, work for large companies, large employers and things like that. And so um, I did not learn of the true history of highways until I was in public health school in my late 20s and was just shocked and ashamed to find out how they were built intentionally through black and brown communities, how they did support white flight, how they really shaped the urban landscape in a way that um, is not just climate unsustainable, but is also socially um, really wrong and unsustainable. So once I learned about that issue, care a lot about air quality um, and found out that TxDOT was trying to widen I-45 from downtown to Bellway 8, 20 and, 28 and a half miles of road, um, displacing over a thousand homes, businesses, churches, all in Black and Hispanic communities along I-45. Um, I I was certainly motivated to jump into the race. I, I hope other people do into this fight. Um, but yeah, basically they just want to widen it. They uh, TxDOT, the Texas um, Transportation Commission, TxDOT claim that it will relieve congestion, make things safer, and mitigate flooding. Um, but as far as I can tell from 90 years of history across cities in the United States, uh, none of those claims make any sense at all. And actually, this plan is very antagonistic to those goals. Now, how did this uh, project come about? How did they decide the path that they were taking? Was it the only path they could have taken? Could they have done something else? Exactly. Uh, or did, was it a path of least resistance? How did this come about? Great question. So I think it's important to kind of know the history. Um, Houston used to be a straight up grid. It was very walkable. Um, Reverend Caldwell with Coalition of Community Organizations stood with me on a corner of Fifth Ward and pointed to downtown and said, if you didn't have a dime for the bus, we would walk. And it would take 10 minutes to get from, you know, thriving Lounge Avenue to downtown on foot. 
And so there was a very, very powerful entrenched interest in the automobile lobby to rip up rail lines like we used to have the Galveston, uh, close streets to people on foot and on bike and open them to cars and, and make the city um, for cars and raise buildings and, and put parking lots in their place and things like that. So, um, you know, this was an intentional kind of history that that's behind all of these things. And so TxDOT, which used to be called the Texas Department of Highways, now Department of Transportation, um, just kind of keeps doing the same thing, right? And then there's the concrete lobby, there's the oil and gas lobby, the automobile lobby, very powerful interest. Um, so do they look at all options? Kind of. They could add regional rail. They could add more biking and walking facilities. Um, but those get dismissed early in the process before the public ever really gets a look at them. The first time the public really knows, communities really know what's going on is when the draft environmental impact statement comes out. Um, of course, TxDOT is known for segmenting their projects and finding no significant impact so that they can avoid the NEPA process, the environmental process. Mm -hmm. um, but for this one, we really caught wind of it in like 2017. Now, was that, wasn't this project supposed to have started already? Yes. Um, yes, it's it's behind it's behind their original timetable. And that is largely almost entirely due to public pushback from groups like Super Neighborhoods, Make I-45 Better Coalition, Stop Text I-45, um, other air quality and transportation nonprofits and, and just general like residents and community groups around town. Now, so uh, a lot of the organizations that you work with and others work with, they actually ensured that this stuff didn't go through. Now, what you want, what exactly do you want to occur right now? That's, uh, I love that question. Um, I think that a lot of the time, freeway enthusiasts, um, mm -hmm. concrete enthusiasts like to paint the opposition as just that opposition, right? Like we're NIMBYs or we don't want stuff. And that's not true. Um, I will only speak for Stop I-45 when I talk about design changes. The most important thing that we want is a true community engagement process, one that incorporates those who will be most affected from day one so that we find out what do you want in your neighborhoods? Um, if, it, if you do have to have land taken, what makes it worth it to you? Um, but at Stop Texas I-45, we want freeway removal. And we've seen that happen in Boston. We've seen it happen in Seoul, Korea. All mm -hmm. over the world, you can rip up concrete and nothing bad happens. Um, in fact, your city becomes much more livable. Communities become connected. So, you know, I always like to say, you can take down the Pierce Elevated. You can even sleep yes. in Cap 59. You don't have to make it any bigger. Now, and what do they do with uh, with mobility? We should we should be doing everything we can to change the paradigm from the, from top to bottom. Like we need trains, we need buses. Um, people like to talk about how Houston is not dense. What they don't realize is that that lack of density is from very intentional decision making for the past what fifty to hundred years. So um, if we can turn right now today and say we do want some density, we don't have to be New York, right? We want some increase in density. We can incentivize inward growth by using happy mediums like bus rapid transit, which is already widely supported by Metro and voters. Um, so we have a lot of options here that we can be exploring. And I think it's always important to note active transport is ideal. You're not only not putting out carbon, you're also increasing the health of the person who's getting around town. You're making things more accessible for folks who can't drive a car, whether that's related to age or disability or, or whatever. Um, and so, you know, really investing in the bike facilities in Houston could cost $500 million or less. And that alone would take cars off the road and make a big difference. Um, so there's really a gamut of options, but they need to start and end with communities who will be affected by them. 
you know, you use the magical word in that whole long uh, paragraph. You actually said the word voters also want it. And if voters want it, why aren't we getting it? And then the other word, the other part of your your, your uh, statement there was that, hey, for half a billion dollars, we could do bicycles all over the city. And it, it's amazing because that doesn't only take carbon out of the air, but it makes for a healthy American, right? Yep. Yep. And, and a more connected society. I mean, it's just so fun for me to bike home from work and smell gardenias and see a neighbor and stop by a neighborhood association meeting on the way. It really opens up the world close to you in a way that I think Houston's have a hard time. Houstonians sometimes have a hard time even imagining. Just because of how it's spread out. So ultimately, uh, Molly, how you mentioned the word voters earlier. It's for this to really occur. Everybody has to be enlightened with the stuff that you're talking about, with our busy lives, with our congestion, with us having all this, making all this effort to move. How do you really get your message across? I know you're doing it with politics and right, but otherwise, how do you get your message across? Yeah, and those are messaging discussions that we have every day. Um, I think it's important to note that at the Tuesday meeting of the Texas Transportation Commission, where they voted in the Unified Transportation Program, which is their 10-year strategic plan, um, we had advocates from Austin, Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, Fort Worth, Waller County, Montgomery wow. County. I mean, people get it, right? Across the state, across diverse groups, across, you know, whatever divides us, people understand that it's just nice to walk to the to the thing down the street and not have to get in your car, not have to pay maintenance fees, insurance fees. I just bought a set of tires and it was nearly a thousand dollars. I mean, that's yes. a big hit for a nurse, right? So I think you just kind of have to meet people where they're at. Sometimes that idea of induced demand is difficult to wrap your mind around, you know, more lanes, meaning more traffic. It, there's a step there that's counterintuitive, but a lot of the time people already feel this in their bones um, and they don't really love their cars. They love freedom. And so when you can, when you can meet people where they're at, find out what piece of it is that they connect to, then that gives you an opportunity to open their minds to imagining something that's um, much more, much more mobile and convenient than what we have right now. Well, you've been with me before, so you know what the last question is. What should I have asked you that I didn't? Um, <clears throat> that's a great question. I guess I just want to really, the way I said it reason, recently was I want to fast track people's skepticism. And um, so it's how do you work with TechDot? How do you think about these things? How do you join in the fight? And, and I need people to join in kind of ready and kind of angry um, this isn't this isn't a blank slate, right? We're looking at 50 to 100 years of intentional decision-making from this body. And yes, the people change, but they continue in the same paradigm. So um, I need people to be as angry about what's happening in their neighborhoods as what's happening in the neighborhood down the street. I need people to take up the mantle for their neighbors who, who maybe are working two jobs and, and are a single mom and can't come you know, to every meeting in Austin and things like that. So I really want people to be skeptical of the way textile operates because of a very long history that is deserving of that. And then I need people to see this as something that is connecting communities and is all of our shared fight. Um, that's how we'll win. That's how we'll make meaningful change. Molly Cook, former candidate, registered nurse, but most importantly, a community activist that's getting things done. Thank you so kindly for having been on Politics Done Right. Thank you so much. What a pleasure. 
here's the deal. The human in me says, uh, I feel for the family of the queen. I feel that somebody is about to leave the earth, maybe. But other than that, I don't see the reason for the commotion about the queen. And secondly, I don't think it is deserved. For most of the world's population, the what used to be the great empire, United Kingdom, was not a positive thing. They came and conquered and killed and maimed to steal riches. That's the lineage of the family we are celebrating now. So why should most of the world be so enthralled that one of them's leaving the earth? I'm sorry. I just don't see it. And I think it's a danger to one's pride. Back at the University of Texas, I remember folks telling me, oh, you're an import. You're from a banana republic. I also remember them saying all kinds of things about the quality of life in Mexico. Montezuma revenge. You're going to go drink the water in Mexico. And then what's going to happen to you? You're going to get sick. And then today I had to listen to this. You can shower or bathe. Please make sure in the shower that your mouth's not open, because again, you do not want to ingest the water. Please make sure in the shower that your mouth's not open, because again, you do not want to ingest the water. Now, let me tell you, being in my little banana republic in Sabanitas, Colón, República de Panama, or I should say Banana República de Panama, I never once had to boil what came out of the tap. Check out more like this at politicsdoneright.tv or at the links in our bio. Welcome to Politics Done Right. We are here with Lisa Rice. Lisa, uh, I interviewed somebody today, and it's great that I'm interviewing you as well. Uh, he had a health care in the United States. He also had health care in Canada. Of course, Canada has a more of a centralized healthcare system by province. We have insurance companies with middle persons and people are selling and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I want to get your opinion as somebody who has been vested in our system, having had a, a recent issue. Please feel free to talk about it if you will. Uh, what do you think is the state of our healthcare system after going through what you've gone through? Oh, um, that's wow. Okay, so the background is um, I am a cancer survivor. Um, I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2017. Um, I have had multiple related and unrelated surgeries um, to get rid of the cancer, to get rid of other organs that might spread the cancer, et cetera, without going into too much detail. But um, I am lucky. I am not independently wealthy, but I have health insurance, really good health insurance. And so I was able to pick and choose my care teams. I, I and I'm very picky. I interviewed four different care teams at four different hospitals before I decided on the care team I wanted. Um, so I make no, um, mistake in understanding I'm very privileged, very privileged. Um, I'm the vice chair of the board of directors for the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship. And I happen to be at 
a dinner just last night with um, several um, ambassadors that, that we have. And these are volunteer advocates from all over the country and we are funding them because they have programs that they've created in their minds and they've come together and we're we're going to help send them on their way with their funding to to build these programs and um i sat by a woman who had been diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer and she was saying that she lost her care team when she moved to a different state and she can't see the scans because in Nevada they don't have um they don't have the same level of requirement for clarity of scans so the scans that she's receiving in Nevada aren't even clear enough for her provider to understand and she has health insurance but you know and but we have so many people that don't have health insurance we have so many people who are just i mean the state what was your question <laughs> like i get really emotional. no no i no i i want you to continue because you're right on point i keep t- telling that story that's imp- because, because i'll this, come in after i mean the state of our 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 healthcare in this country is it's it's miserable um unless you're independently wealthy and even if you're independently wealthy if you don't have an advocate you could be getting substandard care but you're just writing a check for it and think you're you're getting the best care. The, one of the reasons I wanted that is you have good health insurance, and not only do you have good health insurance, you got a you had good outcomes because you were able to select a team. You realize that you're a privileged person in being able to have all of that, Absolutely. and realize that you're in less than a ten percent of what America has, and uh, you, as an individual, acknowledges that. We do have issues with our healthcare system. Um, are you an advocate for something like Medicare for all? You know, I can't speak to Medicare for all because I haven't really studied it. But I okay. will say, you know, you know, Medicare as the coverage system. I'm I'm not familiar right. enough to say that. I will say that I want every person in this country to have access to healthcare. Is that Medicare? I don't know. I don't That's know the mechanism, but I believe that everybody, everybody in this country should be a healthy body. Lisa Rice, Lisa Rice, thank you so kindly for being <laughs> on Politics Done Right. You're welcome. Welcome to Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. We are here today with a special guest, Tom Hartman. Tom Hartman is a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award, a New York Times bestselling author of 33 books. We know it's more than that now. And America's number one progressive talk show radio host. His show is syndicated on local for-profit and non-profit stations and broadcast nationwide and worldwide. It is also simulcast on television into nearly 60 million homes, on Free Speech TV, among many others, as well as the Pacifica Network and KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. Tom Hartman, welcome to Politics Unread. How are you doing today, my friend? Egberto, it is always so nice to be with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, look, we are here to discuss a very important book, and that is The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. Um, look, 
especially in these times, it's needed. What got you, what made you write the book, Tom? Well, I, I, this is actually a book I've been wanting to write for years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this, this uh, Hidden History series is doing well. And the publisher reached out and said, uh, you know, you, can you add another book to this? And I was like, yeah, I want to do this. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, and uh, I, re- I really think that we are at this major hinge point in history, this turning point for America. We've had um, a 40-year neoliberal experiment and uh, that some people refer to as Reaganism or trickle-down economics or supply-side economics or whatever you want to call it. It's really called neoliberal economics. And it is failing terribly. It's gutted the American middle class, which has gone from 65% of us to 45% of us in fewer than 30 years. It's uh, it, it has uh, provided for the massive concentration of wealth at the top. We have three American men who are worth more than the entire bottom half of America. Um, it Imagine has, that. yeah, it has uh, you know expanded poverty. Homelessness is at an all time high. Uh, I mean, it's just the, the the wreckage of neoliberalism is all around us. And of course, the Republican Party still 100 percent clings to it. And there's there's no shortage of Democrats who are still pushing the neoliberal song and dance. And so I wanted to publish a book that just essentially exposed it. And it starts in the 1930s with the first meetings in, in Paris and then in Switzerland, where they came up with this idea and leads all the way to today. You know, that's that's something that I learned. You know, I, I remember um, that book, uh, Capitalism Hits, not Capitalism Hits, that's, that's the other guy. Um, that book that was put out by the lady, I can't remember her name right now, uh, where she spoke about Chile and and Argentina. Shock Doctrine. Shock Doctrine. That's the, the I, I read that book, Shock Doctrine. But even in reading that book, I didn't realize, I mean, I, I, I almost fixated on Ronald Reagan, just like you initially said there, until I kind of read the beginning of your book where you actually state that there were a group of economists sitting down creating this market-based system as if this there was some mythical market that could solve all the problems based on uh, given that their, their their theory is that oh there are so many different variables in the market we couldn't have anything at all centralized so we just let the market dictate everything i didn't know that that actually occurred before the reagan administration etc yeah, no, the the intellectual forefathers, I mean, and this is really a classic example of, you know, the old saying that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Yeah. Um, uh, Hayek, uh, Mises and Friedman, among mm-hmm. others, there was a group of about 30. Um, but these these guys were the shakers and the movers and the principal evangelists got together first in Paris in the, in the late 30s and mm-hmm. then in, in Switzerland uh, around the end of World War II. And the question that they were grappling with. Um, They had just seen Russia go uh, communist, and they had seen both Italy, Germany, and Spain go fascist. And so the question was, how can you make democracies, you know, modern Western democracies, resilient enough that they will neither go communist nor go fascist? How do you you protect democracy? And, you know, Abraham Maslow, the famous psychologist, uh, is often quoted as saying, you know, when the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem in the world looks like a nail. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, these guys are economists. And so they figured the answer to fixing democracy is economic. And their point, and it makes sense. I mean, you know, it, 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 it turns out it doesn't, not, doesn't work. But their point was at every given moment, I mean, literally during the time of this sentence, um, there's probably going to be a million decisions made in the marketplace 
uh, probably just in my state of Oregon, you know, mm-hmm. people choosing which orange juice to buy, which pair of pants to buy, which store to shop at, where to buy their gas. I mean, you know, we're, there's literally millions, billions of decisions being made in the marketplace every minute of every day. And their point was that is a data set that represents basically an intelligence or a data that no bureaucrat, no government official and no politician could ever hope to replicate. Um, in terms of having data for decision making, and therefore we should simply let the market basically run everything. Make let the market run all the decisions. The only functions of government should be police and fire, and and maybe not even fire. Fire should be privatized too, but police and the and the army, and and run a court system to to adjudicate disputes, and everything else will just take care of itself. And that all the things that governments do that are that they consider to be interference in the market or causing distortions in the marketplace, whether it was licensure, Milton Friedman argued against licensing doctors. Um, <laughs> weirdly enough, it distorts the marketplace. Uh, or whether it is, uh, you know, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, food stamps, uh, housing support, you know, the the social safety net. Or whether it's uh, uh, states and federal government paying part of the tuition for college, whatever it may be, all of those things. I mean, they weren't so crazed and ideological that they called them communism or socialism the way Republicans do. But what they said was these are interference. These all these things interfere in the normal market, in the normal functioning of the marketplace. And therefore, we need to get rid of them all. And, you know, we've tried this neoliberal experiment now in Chile. We've tried it in Russia. We've tried it in Iraq. and We've tried it in the United States. It's failed in every one of those places. And in fact, what it what it points out, what it proves is what I've been saying for years and years. And that is that the resting state of capitalism is what Charles Dickens described in his novels. You've got, you know, a one percent that's the very rich, the the royal family and the landowners. You've got a two or three percent that is the middle class. That was Scrooge in Christmas. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a small businessman. He owned a little tiny business that had two employees, him and Bob Cratchit. And then you've got 95 percent of the population is literally the working poor and more than three quarters of them live their entire lives in debt. That's the resting state of capitalism. That's the norm of unregulated capitalism. That's the history of 500 years of Europe and and countries all around the world, frankly, that have tried capitalist systems, laissez-faire capitalist systems. Now, look, Tom, I'm an engineer. Okay. Uh, all I do, well, before I did this was all numbers. And it's, you know, what you just said is a mathematical formula, right? In other words, if you have a sect that can grow at a higher percentage than the majority, then eventually in a system that is closed, then eventually that set takes it all. It's the, it's the derivative. I mean, it's, it's, it, this is all math, right? So it's not hard for somebody like me to understand exactly what you just said. What concerns me is maybe something that you said, and you said that sometimes the path to hell is paved with good intentions. And I sit down and wonder how these guys are economists and they also know numbers. And yes, it is true that there are very various variables there, you know, too many variables for us to create other than a supercomputer to solve. Granted, agreed. But there are certain basics that one should say, we created the economy. We created a society. Why is it that we cannot understand that we can set the parameters loosely or more definitely and have that market works around that? As an example, um, right. 
we talk right. about healthcare as an example. We talk about healthcare. Why couldn't they have said, well, that the healthcare, we'll have that bifurcated economy where healthcare is protected because hell, even the market system needs people that are healthy. That's, yeah. just, that's just one example. Well, the, that that Charles Dickens state of capitalism, which, by the way, existed in the United States in the in the census of 1900, mm-hmm. there were only about five percent of Americans that were what we would today call middle class. The mm-hmm. average family income in today's dollars was forty three hundred dollars a year. Wow. Most of America was living in deep poverty in 1900. So it really wasn't until Franklin Roosevelt started really aggressively regulating capitalism. That and that he did so in a way that allowed a middle class to emerge. And America's middle class, you know, we hit we hit sixty five percent of Americans being in the middle class in nineteen eighty when Reagan came into office, and or eighty one, and that had never before happened in the history of the world because it was regulating capitalism. And the analogy that I draw to you know for your healthcare thing is 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 football. You know, you could say, oh, yeah, let's apply laissez-faire theory to football. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, each team can have as many people as they want on the field. Whichever team gives the largest contribution to the NFL gets uh, an extra player. Uh, you know, you can grab face masks. You can, you know, I mean, you just kind of make up your own rules as you go along, as long as you don't kill anybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, eventually what would happen is the team with the with the you know pays the biggest bribes to the NFL to get extra players on the field or the team that is most willing to to basically push the envelope into what might be arguably unethical at the very least is going to be the team that ends up with everything just like you know the as you know Honoré de Balzac said you know that behind every great fortune is a great crime no, um, no yeah. kidding Yes. No, absolutely. I absolutely agree with that. You know, today, in fact, on my show, and this isn't a crime, though, on my show, I was pointing out because I went to the um, I went to the drugstore today to get the penicillin for my teeth. And um, the, I was talking about healthcare system in Canada versus here. And the guy from Sudan who uh, all his relatives are doctors in either Sudan, uh, 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 Canada or America, you could see that he actually got the capitalism bug in him. Because mm-hmm. when I said I wouldn't have had to go on through this crap that I went through to get penicillin over there, he said, yeah, that's true. But there are con- goods and cons. He says, the one thing that money does is it brings innovation. And then I stopped him and I said, what did Bezos invent? What did any one of these guys invent? Nothing, right? They paid somebody a penny on the dollar to create something. Those people created it and they profited. Please tell me how is it that innovation came from profit? It seems to me like the person who innovated didn't make the profit. Your thoughts? Thomas Edison was dirt poor when he started out, as was George uh, Westinghouse. Mm, There you go. I mean, you know, it's uh, John Rockefeller was not born into great wealth, uh, but he was very, he was a very effective predator. <laughs> right. So, no, that's that's nonsense. I mean, that's 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 like an Internet meme or something. You know, uh, you don't need great wealth to, to have innovation and you don't need predatory capitalism to have innovation. Innovation is the result of people wanting something better than they have right now. And that's an absolutely universal thing. 
And some people will have these skills to apply that in an engineering context. Other people, they'll come up with a new cooking recipe. Other people will develop new art. Um, you know, uh, there's a million ways to innovate. None of them, in my opinion, depend on a, on a so-called free market. It's funny that these myths, though, kind of cauterize into people's minds and you just hear them. You hear the poorest person regurgitating that nonsense constantly. Oh, we have to protect this capitalist structure because innovation will end. You know, there's something that's quite interesting, Tom. You uh, you spoke about Milton Friedman, and I, I think you kind of gave a little bit of uh, maybe a little bit of past the guy said, I thought there was a special evil to Milton Friedman. I don't know if you remember in the 1970s when Milton Friedman had something to say with regards to um, you, you executives owe absolutely nothing to the, to the people, to society, your yeah. sole responsibility are to the shareholders. Don't you think that is the type of premise that all of this is based on and in fact, quite a bit of your book. Yeah, Friedman, you know, being a neoliberal, <laughs> believed that, you know, capital should always seek capital. It should do whatever ne is necessary to to maximize capital, you know, as long as you're not harming others. But his definition of harm was fairly loose. He was a big advocate of General Pinochet, who was <laughs> taking helicopters and throwing them in the ocean when they disagreed with him um, and torturing them in the national arena and, and killing them and burying their bodies there. So, um, you know, Friedman is one of the more amoral of the bunch, in my opinion. Um, you know, I think uh, Hayek and, and Mises, uh, in particular Mises, uh, probably, uh, were more, uh, utopians and Friedman was more of a sellout. Yeah. I mean, he started out as a hustler for the real estate industry. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. 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 So now, interestingly, um, we, you, you, I, you did a contrast between Bush and Obama. Um, explain that. I mean, I, I'm, I'm interested in it. when I say that, I mean, it's like uh, Bush was a deep neoliberal and somehow Obama saved us. No, I, I I'm not I'm not sure what you're talking. Well, about. I, I, I think I think what you mean is when you said that, uh, uh, what is it that you call it? Obama rescues neoliberalism from itself? Oh, in, in, um, is that in the book? Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah. And I think the, I, I know where you're coming from. I just wanted it to be. Yeah, you my saying my it. point yeah. is that, that, you know, Bush, well, actually it was Clinton, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, in 99, um, blowing up Glass-Steagall, who deregulated the banks. Oh, so it was no, no. Graham's idea. The Republicans were pushing the idea. Um, that deregulation of the banks crashed the, the, the economy in the United States and around the world in 2008 on Bush's watch. And then Obama comes in and says, OK, well, we're going to we're going to put some fingers in the dike. We're going to we're going to fix things a little bit. But Obama was a neoliberal also. Yeah, um, definitely. Obamacare, Obamacare is just, you know, another way of shoveling taxpayer dollars into the pockets of giant corporations. And I, I, I think what I was trying to say that you meant was, uh, well, I that I that I got out of it was that he allowed it to sort of survive by putting some patches in there yeah. so that, you know, some, some sort of survivability there. Right. And then, and then uh, Trump came in and took out the patches and surprise, surprise, we've got even more wealth inequality and more problems. Which is expected. Now I, I spoke to um Richard Wolf a few weeks ago and because I really got upset at um inflation uh, and, and, you know, I, I have this, this theory that I put out there and I want, actually, I would like to hear your comments on this. Whereas I said, uh, the, the Russian war really should have created a glut. And I actually made mention on this on, um, on Muslim TV where I think it's proven now 
um, Russia, the, the, the war is in Ukraine, not Russia. And Russia still has quite a bit of oil being exported, being bought at discount from China and India, which means the oil that China and India have been purchasing on the markets, they're purchasing less oil off the markets. And as such, where the hell is this shortage? We also added another million barrels of oil from our reserves for, per day into it. And suddenly, oh, by the way, while the prices reached in, um, in Texas, five something, I think in California, six something, there was never, ever a glut or never, ever a, uh, a shortage of gasoline, even though we only dropped by 2%. What what does those numbers tell you? Well, there's there's two things going on. The first is that during the pandemic in 2020, when when nobody was flying and in, and the sky was free of airplanes, the price of oil collapsed to about thirty dollars a barrel. And right. Had, uh, small oil operations all over the uh, the Texas, the Permian Basin, went under Oklahoma. You know that whole area, who were running on debt and they were and they were going bankrupt left and right. And a lot of them were good friends with, you know, right wing billionaires who had a lot of influence with Donald Trump. And so they went to Trump and they said, you got to save us. And so Trump sends Jared Kushner over to Saudi Arabia and he negotiates this deal with Mohammed bin Salman, where they're going to drop production um, by 2.2 or 2.4 million barrels a day. Saudi Arabia did to try to support the price. Mm-hmm. Of oil. He did. And they did. And the price of oil went up to around 40, 50 bucks a barrel. And the, the oil and the Texas guys were no longer going bankrupt and everybody was happy. So then Biden comes into office and he reaches out to Saudi Arabia and says, how about restoring those those cuts that you did for Bush or for Trump? rather?" And uh, Mohammed bin Salman is like, uh, you've been trash talking me. Screw you. And to this day, they haven't restored that production. There's been a very slight increase in production on the order of a couple hundred thousand barrels a day. Um, but, you know, that happened. Um, I, I do think, though, that the uh, that the price of oil went or the price of gasoline rather, and the price of oil for them mm-hmm. as high as it did and as far as it did, in part in response to the war in Ukraine, uh, not because there was an actual shortage, but because people were anticipating it. You know, futures markets tend to drive markets and futures markets are, t- are driven by speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had that and that's why it's going back down again. And also, I think it's going back down again because the president and a lot of economists, you know, the Roger Robert Reiches and the and the uh, um, uh, what's his name? Paul. Uh, uh, Paul Krugman. Krugman. Yeah. Are, are you know, we're just saying out loud. These guys are just ripping us off and mm-hmm. there's no shortage of proof of it. And then, you know, the quarterly results came out at the end of the last quarter and ExxonMobil and Shell had had the best quarters, I believe, in the history. Of the in company. the history. Yeah. And that and is that point. I think they, they thought, OK, if we keep doing this, they're going to hit us with a windfall profits tax, which, by the way, five European countries have already done. Right. And, and we don't want that windfall profits tax to, to spread. So we'll stop ripping people off. We'll let, you know, we'll let the price go down to three or four bucks a, a gallon. We can still make good money. And so I think that a large part of that explosion in gas prices that lasted about three or four months was artificial. You know, it price was just in power. It was price gouging. Yeah, it yeah, was properly based price gouging. You know, it's it's you know, like I said, when this started to happen, I went and I got um, uh, Dr. Richard Wolf right away because one of the things that I wanted to uh, point out is that those with price and power, and and I think a lot of this is implied in in your book as well. Price and power is what really drives 
costs, a lot of times it has less to do with scarcity than it does with, with again, price and power. Yeah, well, we have an economy in the United States where there is literally not a single consequential industry left that is not dominated more than 80 percent by fewer than five companies well, operate as cartels. So, you know, competition is largely dead in the United States. So prices, you know, for example, in Europe, you know, you can get, you know, 100, 200 megabyte uh, uh, Internet up and down service plus a cell phone for 30 bucks a month. Wow. Just just the Internet. 18 to $20 a month here in the United States, that internet is 60 or $70 a month. And the cell phone is 40, 50, whatever the market will bear. And that's the key. Um, they're not pricing the pricing of most products in the United States, whether it's airfares, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, pick, pick your, pick your uh, poison as it were. There's very few things that are actually subject to competitive price pressures that hold prices down. It's all how much are willing, how much, be, how much can we charge before people stop buying or start screaming? And that's why the average American, and I pointed this out in the hidden history of monopoly uh, and that you and I talked about. Yeah. That's why the average American spends $5,000 a year more than the average Canadian or the average European on a whole variety of things. I call it a monopoly tax, but you know, your internet, your, your cell phone, your, you know, pretty much everything you're mm-hmm. buying. Because there is no competition in the United States. Anymore. Even though the effective tax, again, I said the effective tax rate is not all that different from those that offer good socialized medicine and much more. Now, Tom, chapter 15, privatizing of the commons. One of the, and I, I, I have some thoughts about that, but tell me a little bit about that. Well, this is one of the big the, you know, the, one of the things that uh, neoliberal economists and politicians just absolutely love. It's why Joe Manchin got uh, slipped into both the uh, uh, bipartisan infrastructure bill, really, right. reduction act, a provision that every single penny that gets spent has to go through the hands of a for-profit corporation. And that is this idea, this neoliberal idea that government can't do anything right. And even when government spends tax money, they should spend it through private for-profit corporations so that somebody can make a buck off it because that'll enhance the private economy and the private economy is the ultimate god it's the ultimate good it's the thing that makes everything wonderful and so these private public partnerships that uh, people like josh gottheimer you know the the neoliberals Mm -hmm. and the democratic party and the entire republican party are so in love with um you know that's what they are and and it's just another way of ripping off the american public frankly and you know, trying to take the, the buy, I mean, get the land as well. But I, I think, I, I think it's in, that statement that you made. It's important um, about trying to that the first dollar has to be the first tax dollar has to be spent by private corporations. I think it's important for us to also, you know, call things the way they are. Profit when government spends with a prop for profit companies, uh, profits become an expense, and That's unless. Your waste, if you want to call government wasteful, unless said waste is equivalent to the profit plus, might as well have the waste. huh? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's inherently wasteful. And half of our defense budget is now running through the hands of private corporations. We even have, you know, I mean, it, it, it's this is how insane it is. Um, when my dad was in the army during World War Two, you know, you had kitchen duty, KP duty, right? And you'd peel the potatoes and make the meal and you were a soldier. And if the base got overrun, you'd pick up your gun and go shoot at the bad guys. Yep. Well, you know, they got this brilliant idea when we invaded Afghanistan. George Bush, being a neoliberal, said, well, we need to privatize everything except combat. And they didn't. Mm -hmm. They even privatized large chunks of combat, but they did it on the rubric of security. 
But he said, let's let's privatize everything except combat, and we'll just have the low-paid people get the ones who be the ones who get shot. And so they hired these cooks for a hundred thousand dollars a year, and then you know Halliburton or whatever company it was tacked another thirty percent on top. And mm-hmm. so for one hundred thirty thousand dollars a year, we're paying people to be cooks. The base gets overrun. Then you got to have a soldier come protect the cook. I mean, you know, it's it's, it's crazy, it's literally nuts. Yeah, it, it is funny because I have a friend. He was calling me from Iraq while. Bombs were falling. And then he would tell me stories about going to the mess hall with the card that every time they swipe, it costs 15 bucks or something like that for the meal that they're eating. It, it was a complete waste. And then they they hired a lot of folks that make very little money, you know, folks from India, Pakistan and, and these other these other places. Now, before I, I, I want to talk a little bit about how we restore the middle class, but I want to take this out of order because. Hamilton's 11-step plan worked for 188 years. Really? That's true. That's true. Um, and the Tudor plan worked for 200 years before that in England and, and the Dutch equivalent of it. I never was able to find that there was a name for it, but the Dutch really figured this out about 100 years before that, um, back in the 1400s. And uh, so here's the story. Uh, when George Washington was uh, elected president, he wanted to be sworn in wearing American clothing, American-made clothing. The British had uh, had a monopoly on clothing through the East India Company, and they had outlawed American-made clothing. But there was this one guy, Daniel Hinsdale, who had a little shop in, in Connecticut, uh, who was you know under, underground manufacturing clothes. And so Washington had General Knox to carry his measurements to Connecticut. And Hinsdale brought back a nice brown American-made suit that Washington wore for his inauguration. He wore British black for the famous painting, but, but for his inauguration, he wore an American-made suit. And then when he became president, he turned to his, his secretary of the treasury, Alexander Hamilton, and said, We've got to figure out how to turn America into a great industrial power like the United Kingdom is. We will not have national security until we do. Um, There are some industries that we obviously must have. We must be able to manufacture munitions, for example, and things like that for our military. But beyond that, we, we should be making everything here. So Hamilton did a deep dive into this, and he discovered the Tudor plan, the King Henry VII's Tudor plan from the 1500s. When Henry became president, or became king, rather, um, England was dirt poor. I mean, dirt poor, uh, deeply in poverty. Uh, the roads were all mud roads. The uh, people lived in thatched hutch, huts. Um, you know, it was it, the major export of England was raw wool. And so the plan that uh, Henry VII put into place was that all uh, all imports of finished goods, uh, you know, whether it was a sword or a stove or, or you know, any kind of machinery, whatever it may be, all imports of finished goods had really high taxes on them, tariffs, import tariffs, to mm. discourage the importation of manufactured goods and encourage the manufacture. Of the Locally. Right. And then he gave grants to companies that looked like they had the potential to start factories and build things locally. Um, he gave not just zero tariffs on exports, but actually export supports. In other words, a, a, a tax credit to companies that exported things, again, to expand the market so that the factories could get bigger and more powerful and, 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 and grow. And, and the bottom line was that it turned England in, in two generations from the literally the poorest country in Europe to the wealthiest country in Europe. And so Hamilton took that and put it together as an 11 point plan um, and presented it to Congress in 1791. And by 1793, Congress had adopted most of it. 
And we had these tariffs that ran from, you know, 20% up to 60%. The average was around 40% from the founding of the Republic or from 1793 up until Reagan came into office. In fact, our tariffs were such a significant source of income to the United States that the entire federal government's budget was paid for by tariffs up until the Civil War. Wow. Civil War until the end of World War One, two thirds of the federal government's budget was paid for by tariffs. And what that did is it kept all the manufacturing in the United States. Plus, we exported things all over the world. Um, there was a discount on the import of raw materials, a high price on the export of finished goods. Um, so, you know, which, by the way, I, I was, I, you know, I lived in China in 1988 for a while, and they were having this debate in China at that time about whether or not they should follow Russia and and Chile and and uh, uh, Iraq. It wasn't at that time, but uh, Russia and Chile into this neoliberal experiment, or whether China should adopt uh, Alexander Hamilton's American plan, which is everybody what everybody called it. It was mm-hmm. Hamilton himself called it the American plan. So in the 80s, in the late 80s. As we were abandoning the American plan and the Reagan administration was negotiating NAFTA and negotiated the, the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trades, it became mm-hmm. the World Trade Organization. As we were embracing neoliberalism, China fully embraced the Alexander Hamilton the Tudor, plan. Yeah, yeah the, the old Tudor plan. And guess what? Here we are 30 years later. And uh, 35 years later, more or less, and China this this year or next year will become the largest economy, economy. in the world. China's Chinese middle class uh, numerically is larger than the entire population of the United States. And it's because our manufacturing is being done there. And they're doing all the work. Right. Adam Smith pointed this out in Wealth of Nations. If you have a tree limb laying on the ground, it has no intrinsic value to the nation. But if you apply human labor to it, if you carve it into an axe handle, it Mm. now has value and it has a value that will last for generations. And that value becomes part of the wealth of the nation. The only way wealth is created is not by a service economy. If you wash my car and I mow your lawn and we pay each other for that, there's no wealth created. Right. There's money moving around. Mm -hmm. But a service economy is almost an oxymoron. It does not create wealth unless it's the, the a very narrow range of services, like a surgeon who can put you back together so you can be continue to, continue to be productive. Right. And large service economies don't create wealth. Manufacturing creates wealth. Adam Smith laid this out in 1776. It was the principle on which Alexander Hamilton, one of them, on which he based the, the, the American plan. And and it wasn't rejected in the United States until Reagan came along. We still have 22,000 categories of products uh, in uh, that you can read on the website of the Commerce Department that have tariffs attached to. Them. Yeah, I, I had tariffs, to I had to read that in the days. Yeah. 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 And, the, and the tariffs, you know, in the Reagan era, before the Reagan era, those tariffs were 10, 15, 20, 30, 35, 40 percent, depending on the goods, those goods that had to do with the national defense. Sometimes they were 100 percent tariffs. Um, now they're all like, you know, non-existent. There's zero, one percent, two percent at the most. And I mean, you know, it, it Trump threw a couple of tariffs on a few things, but it was a joke. And so we have no national industrial policy. And what what I end this book with, you know, the hidden history of neoliberalism is a call to return to the Hamilton plan, which worked so well for us and, and has worked so well for China and to abandon neoliberalism. Um, because if we don't, we're going to end up like Russia. Russia is the perfect example of what happens with neoliberalism.
It, it's funny yeah. that you said that because just uh, I, yesterday, actually, I think it was yesterday in the program, we actually said that Russia is a the, the perfect instantiation of unfettered capitalism and where you actually end up with it. And, you know, they're, they're doing a great job of it. So you do think you, you kind of jumped the gun on me right there, Tom, but let me just go ahead and say, so you do think that we do have the we still have the power to rebuild the middle class by just abandoning neoliberalism don't you think we also have to uh create a a, a better bifurcated economy well the two the two are you know you can't do one without the other if you abandon neoliberalism what you're what you're really abandoning is laissez-faire capitalism you're right abandoning unregulated capitalism. So then the question becomes, okay, if we're going to regulate capitalism, how are we going to do it? Just like, you know, the NFL. Okay, if we're going to regulate football, how do we do it? Do we do it so that one team always wins? Or do we do it so that the game is fun and everybody can play and everybody wins, you know, eventually, you know, that, that it's interesting. And, uh, you know, Franklin Roosevelt showed us the way. Um, you know, he, like I said, he built the middle class. There was no middle class in America before Roosevelt and 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 Truman and Eisenhower. Eisenhower wasn't a neoliberal. He was he was right there with, you know, and he was a Republican. Mm -hmm. When he ran for reelection in 56, he bragged about how many people he had joined unions. That was his main thing. That's why my dad was voting for him. Union guy, you know. And and so, you know, what we need to do is we need to go back to to strengthening and protecting unions and union rights. We need to do away with Taft-Hartley and the so-called right to work for less programs. We need to re-regulate financial institutions. We need to break up the giant monopolies. Those laws are still in place. In 1983, Reagan directed the Department of Justice and the Securities and Exchange Commission to stop enforcing the antitrust laws. We need to start enforcing them again and break up some of these giants. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's all stuff that we've done in the past, and it works real well. And it's all stuff that, frankly, every country in Europe except England is doing right now. And and, and look know, at where England is right now with their economy compared to others. Yeah, right. I mean, the whole neoliberal thing started there two years before it started here. It started in 78 with Maggie Thatcher. Maggie Thatcher, yeah. It, so. it is amazing. Well, well, Tom, before we end here real, real, real quickly, um. Uh, what's your expectation for 2022? I'll tell you mine first. I actually think we're going to get the surprise of our life in 2022. I think we hold everything. I agree. I agree. Oh, okay. I think it's going to be an absolute blowout. I, you know, and I, I try not to say it too often because I don't want to jinx it, you know, knock wood. I want to look, I want to speak it. I want to say it because I tell you, um, I, I think, you know, when you remember Obama used to talk a lot about the fever breaking, I wish he broke a few more, but I actually am starting to feel, including with my right wing listeners, a change a coming. And I, I, I think if the Democrats don't screw it up and they could always do that. Yes. Never underestimate. Their <laughs> you know, if they don't screw it up, it's in their hands to take it. And I think take it big because, first of all, women are going crazy. And uh, when it comes to the economy, there are so many different narratives that are out there for us. Tom, give me, you know, the last question I always ask, what should I have asked you that I didn't? I, I don't know. <laughs> if, I, if I hear I don't know from as usual. Egberto, excuse me. Hey, well, let me tell let me tell you something, Tom. I really appreciate you uh, spending the time to talk about your your book. Folks, don't forget, go out and get that book, The Hidden. History of neoliberalism. It's a big word, but it's it's well defined by the one and only Tom Hartman. The hidden history of neoliberalism, how Reaganism gutted America and how to restore its greatness. But before I tell you guys, 
my my right wing brothers and sisters, you have got to read the book. Don't just say see neoliberal and panic. Read the damn book. Tom Hartman, uh, author of The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reagan Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness. Thank you so kindly. And by the way, also the head of the Tom Hartman Show every day on uh, on Free Speech TV, every day on just about every network, including KPFT. You got to check the guy out. Tom Hartman, thank you so kindly for having been on Politics and Right. Nick Barreto, it is always such an honor and a pleasure to hang out with you and talk with you, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. You can listen and or watch Politics Done Right Mondays through Fridays on Facebook Live at facebook.com slash politics done right or on YouTube Live at politicsdoneright.com slash YouTube. Please do not forget to follow me on Twitter for updates. My Twitter handle is at Egberto Willis at E-G- B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. But don't you forget, listen to us live on air at KPFT 90.1 FM on Thursdays at noon and at Fridays at 11 a.m. all Central Time. Please remember to keep your community radio station in your minds. Keep KPFT on your mind. Talk about it. Tell your friends about it. Tell them you know about this station in town, 90.1 FM Houston, that needs your support. That is there to provide that nourishment that we need. KPFT 90.1 FM Houston. Well, folks, that's it for today. You know how I'm going to end this baby. My name is Egberto Willis. This is Politics Done Right. And you know how I end this baby. I am what? Out! Welcome to Politics Done Right. I am your host, Egberto Willis. This is a progressive program that will take the mystery out of politics. This is the program that will encourage you to make sure government becomes we the people. Whether you are liberal, progressive, conservative, or otherwise, you get to hear your point of view. We are an independent media outlet that, unlike mainstream media beholden to corporations, we only owe allegiance to you. Remember, you can also send me a tweet at E-G-B-E-R-T-O-W-I-L-L-I-E-S. That is at Egberto Willis. Let us engage. It is politics done right. Right.